Good evening. You have your Bibles open it to Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing through Matthew's gospel. And we're going to start at verse 18. And let's take another moment and pray as we begin. Lord, as we look at these passages tonight, I pray that, Lord, we would look at our hearts and see where our faith is with you. And Father, that we would be open to receive from you, Lord, healing, direction, a a touch, Father, that would once again inspire us and ignite our relationship with you. Bless this time. May we fight off distraction, God. May we give you attention and allow your spirit's voice to permeate our hearts and our minds, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. And we do pray your blessing on us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at basically the healing that takes place in in five lives in this portion of Scripture. Uh, You know, Jesus is showing us what it looks like to be a disciple, what faith in him looks like. And Matthew is giving us insight into what the faith of a disciple looks like throughout these passages. And so what we're seeing here is that being played out. We're going to see how faith looks, how faith maybe doesn't look, and how we stack up to that. In verse 18, it starts off, verses 18 and 19 we'll read, and we'll see Jesus, while he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. There is a depth of emotion that most of us will never fear or understand reading these two verses. There are a few people who have lost their children, and indeed there is no greater horror that can take place than for you to lose your child. Losing loved ones, family members, husband, wife, mom, dad, as difficult and tragic that is, does not begin to touch what it would be like to lose your child. And so this passage starts with just this depth of emotion and tragedy that, again, few really understand. Those who have lost a child understand when they just read this passage, it overwhelms them with an emotion. And as this takes place, this overwhelming emotion, this desperation of the father is easily understood. But more than the desperation and the emotion is this audacity of faith that says, you know what? If I can get Jesus to come and lay his hands on her, she'll live again. That is unbelievable. That someone would have that faith 
and believe so much that they would approach Jesus and say those things to him. That Jesus has the ability to bring her back from the dead. I mean, we read this passage and it's like, oh yeah, Jesus is going to go and this is going to happen. But when you've been around death, when you have encountered just these kinds of circumstances, there is a finality and a grip that death has that is just overwhelming. It is a wall we cannot get past. And to believe that Jesus can is incredible. This is an incredible show of faith on this religious leader that is challenging for us. And what's amazing here is Jesus all along has been telling people, follow me, follow me. He said to Matthew, just last chapter, come, follow me. And now here we see Jesus actually follows this man. And it's amazing because up until now, everyone's been following Jesus, but here he actually starts to follow this man and he's following someone who has complete belief and faith in him, so much so that even this circumstance that is beyond the ability to change. This isn't take some vitamins, you'll maybe get better. This isn't get some rest. His girl is dead. And he asks Jesus, come because you can make her alive. That's amazing. That's just an amazing show of faith. And then it gets interrupted. We see in verse 20, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. We know from one of the other gospels account that this woman had touched Jesus and Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And the disciples said, are you crazy? There's a mob around you. Everyone's touching you. But he said he perceived that virtue had left him. I don't know what that means, but it's interesting. And so in that moment, Jesus is aware that someone has a need. And this woman in her condition thinks, if I can just touch him. Again, we see this illustration of faith being played out in this woman's life. And, and isn't it a weird thing how when someone is well-known, people want to get around them? Have you ever been to like a sporting event, maybe a basketball game, and the you know Lakers are going in for halftime, and everyone wants to reach out, hey, I just want to get a high five from one of the players, you know, just maybe Gasol, hey, come here, Kobe, hey, touch, you know, give me a high five. They pat him on the back if they see him, and just, I want to be connected to this famous person. Well, the crowd was doing that around Jesus. Everyone, hey, patting him on the back. Everyone was kind of reaching for him. And this lady just got his garment. And he said, hey, who touched me? Now, her condition, it, it seems a little strange to us. So we have to kind of invest in this culture. And we need to remember who Matthew is writing to. He is writing to the Jewish people. And so to see that this woman had an issue of blood, as it says here, this bleeding that was going on, what that meant, and it was probably a menstrual thing, 
And what would happen is that during that cycle, she was not allowed to go into church, basically, into the synagogue. She was considered unclean for that time. And, and so here she is having this issue where she is not allowed to be involved with the spiritual community at all. Even her own family would have to consider her unclean. They're not supposed to have any contact with her at this time. And this is going on for 12 years. And so you see here that there is just this outcast, this being separated, this being kind of disowned from your people and community for 12 years. And you can imagine what she's gone through in these 12 years trying to find a healing, going to different doctors, going to different people to, to find some way to get rid of this stigma and this ailment that is keeping her just out of the community. And she has this idea, this hope, if I can just reach out and touch the edge of Jesus' cloak, I can be healed. And he turns and he says to her, your faith has healed you. And she's healed in that same hour. Once again, we see someone who is putting faith in Jesus so much that maybe this will bring healing to me. And what's challenged me in these passages is, do we dare to believe that God would do something like this? That God would heal someone who has died? That, that God would bring this kind of healing in this circumstances? Are, are we ready to believe or, or are we afraid to believe because, well, we, we really doubt that he would? And faith is, is a tricky thing because we want to have faith, we want to believe, but then we find ourselves, well, I don't really, but I want to. And here we see two examples of people who said, I think if I do this, this will happen. If I will just connect to Jesus in this way, touch the hem of his garment, get him to put his hands on my daughter, I believe he can do that. Do we believe that he can do these things? The miraculous. Or when we pray, Lord, heal this person, but I don't really think he's going to. And so I'll include in my prayer, but if you don't, then maybe you could do this. Just, you know, help us to feel better. And we want to give a little out in case he doesn't actually heal. And because we are of little faith so many times, we're quicker to not believe than we are to believe. I think sometimes that's where we find ourselves. Well, I don't want to let them down. I don't want to believe too much. And so I'm quicker to go to a place of doubt than actually to a place of faith. And as Jesus is interrupted in this time, you know, he, he's on the way to this man's house and all of a sudden this lady interrupts him. And I could see this guy walking all of a sudden, where's Jesus? He was here a second ago. He's right behind me. And now there's a, you know, big group of people all surrounding him. Oh man, he got interrupted. And you know, life is like that. You're on your way to, to something and then all of a sudden something else comes up. And when you're trying to do, you know, some kind of work for God, quote, ministry, 
and you've got it in your mind, this is what ministry is going to look like. We're going to go from here to there, and don't be surprised if somewhere in between you get interrupted. Where you're on your way to wherever it is. I'm going to so-and-so's house. I'm going to go and minister to them. And you stop in the middle and all of a sudden there's an opportunity for some other ministry to take place. It's not that easily planned out. Ministry is taking place when you least expect it. How many times has that happened to you, to me? where you're thinking you're going to do one thing, and all of a sudden, oh, I didn't plan on this, but, oh, wow, this is pretty cool, too. This is great. And he's not, Jesus is not so tunnel-visioned that he can't be interrupted with the life of someone else in need, and we shouldn't be either. You know, it's it's good for us to, to have that kind of openness. You know, and, and I get a text message or an email saying, so-and-so is in need or needs a prayer or can you visit so-and-so, you know, and it would be real easy for me to go, well, you know, I was kind of on my way over here. I was doing this. I can't really do that because that's going to interrupt ministry. Doesn't that sound funny? Yeah, ministry is going to interrupt ministry. That doesn't make any sense. And we see Jesus' availability to touch those who are in need, and that speaks to me, and that should speak to all of us, that we should be available to minister to those in need. And what a blessing it is when we do, or you see someone who does. And it's great to see those things take place. And then Jesus goes on in verse 27. He went on from there, or verse 23, I'm sorry, When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. Think about that. They laughed at him. Here's this scene. These people are here and and they're mourning. Pipes are, they're playing flutes or some kind of dirge. It's a somber moment. There's weeping. There is actually people who would hire people. Even the poor people would hire people to come and mourn. It was a a sign to show that this really is a sad moment. It's so sad we hired people to share in our sadness. Sometimes when you're driving along the roads, especially in Mexico to Vizcaino, it happens a lot, you'll see these little kind of memorials set up where someone has died on the road. In fact, you see a lot of them. You know, it's like there's a lot of these things and it's like there's a cross there and someone, I mean, they'll actually go out there in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of desert, you'll see this little blocks and this little memorial set up and there'll be flowers there and it's their way of saying, this is so important to us, I want it to be remembered. And we'll go out to the middle of nowhere so many days and put flowers just to show that what happened here is really a tragic thing. And that's what they're doing. They're bringing people here. They're, they're mourning. There's music playing. And Jesus says, hey, go on. Stop. She's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and touched the girl by the hand, and she got up, and news of this spread throughout the region. Now, as Jesus heals this 
man's daughter who is dead, our minds immediately think about the fact that he touched someone who was dead and she's alive now. How can you not think that? I mean, that's automatically where we go. But what is interesting to me is how Jesus just deals with this. He sees things differently. Remember last week we talked about the man who was paralyzed and he was brought before Jesus and Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. We're thinking, wait, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for healing. But Jesus saw a more serious need. Yeah, you need to be healed, but you know, you're still got to deal with something else. And what's really important is your sin. And so Jesus told him, your sin is forgiven you. And Jesus comes here and they're weeping in their mourning and he says, she's not really dead, she's asleep. Now that's not how we think of death. We think of death as dead. I think of sleep as sleep and I think of death as death. But Jesus seems to think differently. This girl wasn't asleep, she was dead. At least on your and my terms, but you see, Jesus is seeing from a different perspective. And what's so permanent and final to us, what is so unsurmountable to us, to Jesus, it's like sleep. And this is challenging us in how we see things, what perspective we really see things in. From our vantage point, things seem unmovable, impossible. But from heaven's vantage point, it's no big deal. She's just asleep. Think of the difference in your mind of what it means to be asleep and what it means to be dead. And for this to be said about this young man's daughter, yeah, these people laughed at him. You're crazy. They thought, this guy is nuts. He's out of his mind. She's asleep. Oh my gosh. What a thing to say. That just is absurd from our vantage point. But there is another vantage point where if we could see like God sees, if we could see like Jesus sees, then nothing is impossible. If we could see like Jesus sees, we would say to that mountain, get up and be thrown into the sea and it would obey you. If we could see through his eyes, things are different. And so, you and your circumstances, your, your marriage is struggling and you're thinking, oh, there's no way that things can get better. This is really just a drag. This is an awful thing and there's no way out of this. Well, if you see like Jesus sees, there is healing that can be found finances. There's no way you can get out of this pit. This is such a, a place of despair. But if I could see like Jesus sees, then this isn't the end. 
that we are like little faith because don't you understand? He takes care of the birds. He, he raised and clothes the flowers and Solomon in all his wealth and glory was not arrayed like one of those. If we could just see the way he sees things, we would be filled with hope. We would be filled with life and our lives would not be in the despair that we find them in so many times. Heaven has a different perspective. And you know, we might not receive the physical healing. That paralyzed man earlier in the chapter still died. This man's daughter still died. But even after she dies, Jesus still sees it as sleep. Because our life is more than just what we see here. There is life that does not end. And that's why Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says it so matter-of-factly. You'll never die if you believe in me. We need to change our perspective. We, we need to try and see the way Jesus sees these things. You know, you, you might not financially live as comfortably as you would like. You, you might not physically be as healthy as you would like. But do you see that Jesus is doing a deeper work, that he is doing something of eternal value in our lives? Do we see that there is something more taking place? What Matthew is trying to do, he's writing these things to help us see this kind of faith, this kind of belief, this kind of trust in this man, Jesus, and why it's so important. It changes everything. It changes everything. And of course, after this man's daughter is risen from the dead, news spreads throughout the whole region. Of course. Why wouldn't it? Something crazy happens. The girl was dead. I know she was dead. He said she was sleeping, but she was dead. And now she's alive. So everyone's talking about it. Verse 27, we see yet another healing. Two men. Jesus went from there. Two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now, the term son of David is one that's a, a messianic term. Again, Matthew is writing to the Jewish people to try and show them who Jesus is. And so by using this language, they are identifying Jesus with the Messiah. That was a messianic terminology. And so here they are giving this praise to Jesus. Jesus, we see you as the Messiah, son of David, have mercy on us. And what does Jesus do? Verse 28. When he had gone indoors, the blind man came to him. I want you to stop and think about that. Because Jesus walked past them and went inside. He left them out there. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on him. And he went inside. Doesn't that seem cold? It's like, 
Jesus saying, well, come and follow me. They're blind. And he walks inside. And they do go indoors. Now, think about this. Next time you go into a room where there's about 30 or 40 people, close your eyes and try and find one person. Is that your phone? I'm <laughs> okay, good. I thought it was mine. I was going to be embarrassed, but now I can embarrass you. <laughs> go into a, a house where there's about 30 people, close your eyes and try and find one person. And don't just go by yourself, bring someone else with you. Have two people close their eyes and go and try and find one person. Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that you See that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Here's again one of those, this should be in a movie. Jesus hears these men crying out. He hears them, but he still walks inside. They still cry out, and then Jesus sits somewhere in this house. And I can see him just keeping his eyes on these two men as they grope their way through the group, crying out, where is this Jesus? Where is he? And in spite of their blindness, in spite of the crowd, they come and find him. Why does he make them do that? I don't understand all the reasons why, but for some reason... God wants us to pursue him. He wants us to pursue him. And I have a little understanding of what this is like in my own life and even with my kids. If my kids really want something, it's better for them to pursue it and not just give it to them. If you just give it to them, it means little. But if they have to pursue it, it means a lot more. If they have to stay up all night, Christmas Eve or something, or Black Friday, to get that special whatever it is, it means a little bit more to them because they had to kind of invest themselves into that. And for some reason, God wants us to pursue him. That's why he says, ask. That's why he says seek. That's why he says knock. He wants us to pursue him. He wants us to go after him. Because we invest of ourselves in the right direction. And, and, and so many times in my life, there's a circumstance that is haunting, that is difficult, that is troubling. Recently, one of our boys was in Louisiana, and he'd gotten hit by a car, and we didn't know where he was. 
We didn't know if he was dead on the side of the road. We didn't know what had happened to him. We, we had known that he'd gotten hit by a car, and we talked with his wife and with him shortly, but he wasn't in his right mind after he got hit by the car, and we didn't know where he was. And so I had to get on a plane and fly to Louisiana to try and find my son who I didn't know where he was. I was pursuing him. I was troubled. It, it, it enveloped me. Not knowing what had happened, calling his phone and it going straight to voicemail time and time and time again. Getting on the plane and now I have no phone connection with anyone, with my wife, with his wife. No one knows what's going on and I'm up in the plane for these hours and all I can think about is, God, is he okay? And all I can do is pray, God, watch over him. God, have mercy on him. And, and something happens inside of you in those times. There is a... a depth that your soul goes to. There is this yearning for God and for his help that goes to that doesn't happen when it's not so serious. When things aren't so dark and unclear. There's a place you go to because you don't know where else to go. You go to God with all that you have and you go there and you go there and you go there. You pursue God. I'm pursuing him. I'm pursuing my son, trying to find out what's taking place. And it changes you. It takes hold of you. So that nothing else matters but finding my son. And when I landed, I got a voicemail that they had found him. He was okay. He had suffered a concussion. Kind of lost it for a while, but he was at a place where he worked. Just spoke to someone this week, a couple people this week, gone through just horrific circumstances, just awful. And as I was having lunch with this one young man, and he was telling me just the shock and the difficulty of the things he'd gone through, and then he tells me, I've never been so close to Jesus as I am right now. I've never needed him more than I need him right now. There's something that happens to us when we pursue God. And let's face it, we don't always pursue him. Things are going good. I don't need to pursue him. Oh, I pray Jesus blessed this peanut butter sandwich. There, I pursued God. Now let me check my Facebook. But when there's something serious, we get serious. And so there's something about pursuing Jesus. And he invites it in these men. And this picture is just, it's touching. That he would walk in and make them come inside and grope after him. I think that's a picture that we need to hold on to. I think that should be us. And, and sometimes that is. I'm just groping. I'm just trying to find you in the midst of this Jesus. Help me.
And oftentimes that's where he shows up and that's where he brings the healing. And then he tells them, don't, don't tell anyone. In fact, he tells them sternly, don't tell anybody. That's what I think sternly is. <laughs> you know. Why would he do that? Jesus is not trying to be a spectacle. He's not trying to get on TV. He doesn't line 100 people up and then blow on them and knock them down. Jesus is trying to deal with people and as many people in a, a real intangible way that he can. And he knows that if this becomes a spectacle, that's going to change. And so he's trying to keep this very personal. Of course, what would you do? If you were blind your whole life, all of a sudden you can see, don't tell anyone. Okay. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> you know. Weren't you blind yesterday? Yeah. <laughs> See you later. You know, what do you do? You got you got to tell someone. It's an interesting thing. And so they tell everyone and then again it spreads over the region. Verse 32. One more healing that takes place. While we were going out a man who was demon possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. The Pharisees aren't denying a miracle took place. They're just denying the source. And Matthew's purposefully bringing this out and showing us the irony and he's doing it after all these other miracles. I mean, you think of what's happened. First, you know, there was someone who was dead, and he brings life to a person who was dead. Jesus cleans a woman who was considered unclean. He brings light to someone who was living in darkness, and he brings restoration to a man to a truer image of God than he was when he was mute and he was possessed. All these things, he's bringing people to a clearer understanding and focus of God, a clearer connection. You were, un you were clean, now you're unclean. You were dead, now you're alive. They're bringing them to a place that's closer to God, and they're saying it's demonic. Does that make any sense? Does that make any sense at all? No, it makes absolutely no sense. Why would they say that? Because they're jealous because they can't deny it, but they don't want to acknowledge it. And it's amazing what people will do. And it happens in Christendom all the time. There will be a ministry that is doing amazing. They're growing. They're bursting out the seams, and everyone will attack them. Why? Because they're not doing things the right way. They're, you know, too this. They're, they're too liberal. They're not, you know, really rightly dividing the word of God. They're, they're being, you know, social. They're being whatever. They just want to knock them down. Why? Because they're being effective. Something's going on over there. And usually the people who are critical are the ones that are afraid of what's happening over there. We need to be careful that we don't become that. And in fact, just in closing, I want to touch on three things that we need to kind of ask ourselves, how do we live this life of faith? The first thing is, do we recognize our disbelief? Sometimes, just as we see this example of audacious faith, 
We have audacious disbelief if we were really to look at things. I mean, think about this. God looks down and he thinks, do they really believe that I can't heal this relationship? Do they really think that this is this person is too far gone? Do they really believe that I'm unable to help them in this circumstance? And and God must just look up from heaven thinking, really, you don't believe I can do something here? And I think we need to recognize that we have such disbelief sometimes that God is wanting to do so much more than we believe him able to do. Do they really believe I can't give them victory over their addictions? That I can't bring restoration in their life? Do they really think I can't do that? So do we recognize our disbelief? I know we believe in Jesus. I know we know he's our Lord, but what about that disbelief? Do you recognize it? Do I recognize that there is something there that is really audacious in the heart and mind of God that I wouldn't believe him for so much? Next, do we pursue God? You know, maybe we need to come back to a place where we really believe and search after God. I remember when my kids were small and they would have that laugh, you know that laugh that's just contagious? They laugh and it turns into a giggle and then it breaks out into this kind of like coughing laugh. <laughs> you know, and it just echoes throughout the house. And they loved it when I would chase after them. They loved it. When you pursue them, they just little patter of their feet and you can catch them. They're small, you know, it's not that. But they just want to run and they want you to come after them. In fact, when you stop, they start coming out there like, can't catch me. You know, and they want to go hide and run away from you again. Do we pursue God the way we should? None of these stories that we've read would have taken place if people had not pursued Jesus to find healing for themselves or the ones that they loved. None of them would happen if they didn't pursue Jesus. Jesus works in the lives of those who pursue him. Are we pursuing him? And then maybe we need to make a decision to believe the truth about Jesus. Maybe we've been in a place of doubt like the Pharisees. And maybe we're not attributing this to demonic work, but maybe we're just not recognizing Jesus for who he is. And what we need to do is confess and say, Lord, I really have not believed you. Because there is a healing work that God wants to do in our lives that is a lot more than we're wanting usually or expecting to take place. And I'm wondering, what does God want to do? How does he want to heal? How does he want to work? What does he need to change in me so that I can believe, so that I can see, so that I can be cleansed, so that I can have his life in me, so that I can be free from that burden and oppression of this world? What needs to happen?
It's not that God isn't able. The problem's with us. The problem's with me. Maybe I'm not seeing things right. Maybe I'm not pursuing him enough. Maybe I don't believe. And what we need to do is once again be restored to a place of understanding who Jesus is, what he can do, and that he wants to do this, but we need to pursue him. And what I want to do tonight is I want to take some time where we can pursue the Lord for whatever is needed in our lives. If you need physical healing, I want to pray for you. You know, James tells us that we are to call the elders and they're to lay hands and that the prayer of faith will restore and heal those who are sick. Maybe what you need to do is actually just pursue God himself with your heart more. Maybe you've been complacent in that area and you understand that you're really not pursuing him as you should or not believing him as you should. Well, we want to give space for that to take place. And so what we're going to do now is Danny's going to come up and he's going to do some more uh, songs. And while he's worshiping, I'd like to have some people up here. Mike, I'd like you to be up here praying with me and Val, if you could, uh, as well. And Beth, too, if you would be up and praying. If you need prayer, we're going to just be over here. We want to pray for you. If you want to share with us what's going on, that's fine. If you don't, if you just want prayer, we want to pray for you. And if you just want to cry out to God where you're at and pursue him where you're at, that's fine too. But how can we read these things and what our Jesus is able to do and not be moved towards him, not recognize that there is so much more he wants to do in our lives? that maybe we're just not open to, that we're not really hungry for, that we're not desiring for. There's so much Jesus can do. Are we allowing him the access in our lives and our hearts to do all he can? And if not, then let's step in that direction. Let's pursue after him. Let's pray. Father, you've been just kicking my butt with these scriptures all week, God. You've been challenging me. You've been prompting me. You've been nudging me, reminding me, convicting me of what needs to take place in my life, of how little I do trust and believe in you. And Lord, you've been so gentle to try and encourage me. And I pray you would encourage us tonight. Lord, as we take some time to come to you, to cry out to you, to ask of you, to pursue you, Lord, may you hear and may you respond and may you answer. May you fill us with your spirit. May you touch our lives. Father, may you embrace us. May you bring healing. May you bring restoration. May you bring clarity, enlighten us, open our eyes. May your life capture us, Lord. As we take this time, Father, meet us here. As we draw near to you, draw near to us, Lord. 
we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.